Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. Year one uh, did not go to plan at all. Um, we had a riot uh, in my seventh game. Uh, so I think two two wins, two draws and two losses and game seven a riot. Uh, so it's not, not exactly what dreams are made of. I'm Simon Austin and our guest on today's episode is Connor Nesta. Connor worked for the Football Association of Ireland for eight years before becoming head coach of Svai Rieng in Cambodia in 2018. In just his second season, he led the side to the league title and now he's just joined Hyderabad FC in the Indian Super League. Connor talked to us about his fascinating career journey and how he's used analysis to overcome a lack of resources. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast, Connor. Oh, my pleasure, Simon. And congratulations on your new job with Hyderabad. Yeah, um, it's uh, you know I tend to be a guy that stays in places for a long time. So uh, when I worked in Ireland, I think it was almost ten years. I worked with the Football Association and uh, nearly six years in Cambodia. So I'm someone that likes to kind of stay in places. Uh, but you know what they say, change is as good as a rest. And I'm really excited now about the new project that I'm joining. And I suppose you're quite unusual in having worked in the countries you have. How have you found that so far? Do you have a hankering to come home or is it still going well and you're happy? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that in some ways my journey has been very deliberate. Um, and in other ways, it's it's been quite accidental. Uh, so in 2016, I kind of made the very deliberate decision to leave leave the Football Association of Ireland to leave Ireland and basically the the thought process in that was a simple one that you know the sporting industry and uh, in particular the football industry in Ireland was was quite small uh, and quite closed off and I just felt particularly if I was going to develop as a coach that I probably needed to leave the country uh, so basically once I came upon that realization it was I was all in um, Handed in my my notice. I think I gave them six months' notice and started to sell my house. And uh, I'm sure there was plenty of people that thought it was like an, an early midlife crisis. But no, look, I've not really re- regretted it. It's been challenging living far away from home, like you said. And of course, you always miss miss your home country, your family. And as an Irishman, you miss that, that unique point of Guinness that you can only get in Ireland. Mm. But look, uh, I think when you work in football, you're kind of lucky that your passion and, and your career are the same thing. So you're kind of committed to make those sacrifices. And how have you found things in India so far? Yeah, so I'm here like about five, six weeks at the moment. Uh, the players aren't here yet. They're in off season. So it's been very much kind of putting structures in place for, for how I operate as a coach and and obviously putting a new team together. Um, Hyderabad is a very interesting project in terms of it's, it's a club that gives young players a chance, uh, produces those, kind of develops those young players. And then ultimately, you know, the market here in India dictates that some of the really, really big budget teams come and, and steal your best talent. Or, well, they don't steal them most of the time. They, they normally pay you. So, th- so that's kind of the remit, if you like. Um, and I've come in here at a period where 
there's there's many changes in terms of there's a lot of outgoing players and a new cycle of starting if you like and I think my my appointment is is part of that so um it's been really good so far that just the people here are so friendly um and the staff that I'm going to be working with I'm really really looking forward to working with them so um but you know as a coach you're you're looking always for pre-season to start off seasons kind of after you've had four weeks of a uh, on a beach somewhere you're kind of ready to get back at it so yeah I'm looking forward to when the players get here and the real work really starts and I know you said the players haven't arrived yet what's your work involved so far yeah so it's it's mainly been on the recruitment side uh so interestingly when when kind of the club approached me in coming here I kind of pitched to them what you know uh, what was what I felt was going really well for them, and and what they should kind of keep as as part of their 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 kind of DNA going forward, and then I also pitched kind of how I I, I felt they they should try and evolve in some ways. Um, uh, so the, basically, my first five six w- weeks here has been trying to implement that a little bit in terms of you know how things will be a little bit different with me and then what that looks like in the medical department what that looks like in the sports science department and obviously off season recruitment's been massive uh, so it's been me and the sport and the director and uh, the the two analysts uh, actually we've 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 three now we've taken in another one since I've come in so three three analysts myself and the sport and director have uh, been spending way too much time together uh, in, in in trying to obviously get the best players in uh, because look uh, it's it's maybe a bit cliched but like you want to be a good coach you get good players you want to be a great coach you get great players and mm. I do think as much as we back ourselves as coaches and and kind of all the different modern areas where you can help players get better at the end of the day, if you get your recruitment right, you're, you're on a winner. You were talking there about the sporting director. How does that work? And do you very much work in tandem? Because I know it varies from club to club over here. Yeah, it's interesting. If you look at my time in Cambodia, I was so, so lucky in terms of I went into a club that kind of gave me a blank canvas. And I was probably the lead person from a football perspective throughout the club. Uh, so I had a, a GM from Edinburgh by the name of Christopher Grant, who was a great support support to me. Our CEO was from Melbourne, a man called James Moo, and like they were brilliant, but they, they basically gave me free reign. Um, so in Cambodia, it was very different in terms of maybe I was the driver, if you like, in kind of every development that touched the football side at all. Um, and I think one of the reasons why why I kind of hopped on the plane and came here was that they probably had more of a support system around a head coach. And I felt after five seasons in Cambodia that I learned a lot by having to do so many different things in Cambodia. So it was a great learning curve. Mm -hmm. But then what I wanted to do is come into an environment where you did have a sporting director or you did have a technical director or where you had a team of analysts, which is something that we didn't have in Cambodia and, and, you learn then how do you manage those relationships? How, how do you work within those those networks, if you like, or those those, those departments? Um, so it's been really good because you say about the sporting director, you know, I've come in, they've had their own database in terms of players, um, which was great because the Cambodian season is different windows to here. So a lot of the markets that I would have been kind of shopping in in Cambodia 
were windows that that ended around the same time as ours so that you could get your business done and then look the budget is higher here as well so so you're shopping in different markets so mm-hmm. um i think the sporting director has been a great help to me in terms of they'd probably earmarked quite a few targets already uh we actually got one 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 player done already which is someone that they tried to sign last January. So it's always kind of great when you see things are already in place in a club and you're kind of piggybacking a, a little bit. And then on the flip side, there's there's some things where I'm like, well, we, we changed the profile for this player a little bit because this is how we're going to play. Um, um, so no, it's been good. I, look, I always feel structure-wise, it's good when you have a very clear structure that, and then you know where you fit in that. But ultimately, it's about people and relationships. And uh, if if you're working somewhere where there's good people, I've been fortunate in that. I had that in Cambodia, just under a different structure. And now I've come in here as good people again, and it's a different structure. So so you learn different things is, 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 I guess, the way I would look at it. And we've covered a bit on the Indian Super League. We had uh, Rennie Moulinstein on the podcast, who I think was with Kerala Blasters. What's the league like at the moment? Because I know there were quite a few sort of European players and coaches coming over at one point and quite a lot of money being spent. What's it like now? If you use the MLS as a guide, it's moved like the MLS in terms of MLS had kind of the older players, the bigger names coming in the beginning. And now it's kind of moved more into uh, can we get players in their prime? Uh, can Can we develop young players, sell them on, for example? Um, can we shop in markets where there is a resale value to the foreigner? So they're 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 thinking a little bit more like like the MLS is now, um, and also the season. What what happened in the past was it used fit you know the cricket was in one part of the year and the football was in another, and now it's more of a football calendar. Uh, which to be fair, I think has been more or less dictated by the AFC, which is the the Asian equivalent of UEFA, in terms of look to get into AFC Champions Leagues, you need to have played this amount of games. This year is the 10th year uh, of the Indian Super League. So it's probably developed a lot in its short time. And I think with leagues like this, in markets where, you know, cricket is a religion, it's it's a difficult transition from the big names that obviously bring lots of attention mm. to kind of, you know, who, who am I in relation to Rennie Moulinstein? Uh, and probably who's the foreigner that I'm going to sign in relation to a Berbatov, for example, who who uh, who Rene would have had when he was here. Uh, yet I feel the end product is a lot better just because they're, they're playing now in the markets they should play in, in terms of getting the best in product out on the field. How popular is football in the country? So I think it's, it's sort of geopolitical. Uh, it depends where you're living. Uh, so my goalkeeping coach and the owner actually would have been in Karela Blasters before. That's where um, Borbatov, for example, played. And football's number one in, in Karela. So if you're walking, you like you wouldn't be able to go to the supermarket if you lived there as, as an employee of the football club or certainly as a player. Whereas here in Hyderabad, we're going into our fifth season. There's an Indian Super League team in the city. So it's one of those where I think... Football is probably number two, but it's can you can you grow it to to make it kind of uh, number one a sustainable business model if you if you run a professional football club, but also number two where the football club can kind of you know win the hearts and minds of the local community and then 
grassroots football becomes a much bigger thing than it is and, and it, it starts to spiral in that way. Yeah, and I was going to spin back to your time in Cambodia now, if that's okay. Um, so, so first of all, how, how did that move come about? My, my travels after I left FEI took me to America and then later to, to Melbourne. I, I didn't really fall in love with the, the footballing environment, if I'm being honest, but I fell in love with the city. Uh, it, was, it was a magic place to play uh, or to stay and to play also um, but it was a really good part of the world um, and b- basically somebody offered me a job a good friend of mine actually offered me a job to stay there for two years I had to get on a sponsorship visa uh, which meant basically I had to leave go through the process and, and come back and a good friend of mine had kind of been on a similar situation with a sponsorship visa and he said look go to Phnom Penh uh, I lived there for six months it's kind of you'll enjoy living there it's a good place to kind of lay your hat for a while and you'll probably get like some short time work etc so just listen to my friend really flew to flew to Cambodia did some work in 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 international schools coached the semi-pro team in the evenings just to keep myself busy while the visa process was going going on for for Australia basically the semi-pro team got a result or two that they shouldn't have uh, beaten some top pro teams and then Swyrian basically you know knocked on the door and said would you like to be our head coach and stay and um, so it, it, it wasn't by design uh, in that sense but you know it took me took me about six seconds to decide that that I'd stay and, and, and be a head coach you know and thankfully my friend in Australia was very understanding yeah just took the job and went from there basically. What was the setup like when you arrived? They were a good team, good players that had a good coach before me. Uh, in terms of if you talk about a football club, there, there, there wasn't a structure in terms of like who does what. There wasn't the departments, clearly defined departments. Um, it, it was basically, you know, we, we put on training sessions and we play games. And, you know, at 2018 in Cambodia, they, they were... They were very successful in cup competitions with that attitude and played a good brand of football. So basically, I just pitched to the CEO something very different to what they were used to in terms of, you know, let's build a football club. Uh, let's have different departments like sports science, like analysis, like scouting, like recruitment. Let's build a community section of the club. Uh, let's start thinking about training grounds, pathway from the academy. Uh, stadiums etc so it was it was an ambitious pitch uh, uh, and thankfully you know the CEO was kind of very data driven person as well so when I kind of gave him metrics and stuff like that in in terms of this is how we're going to play this is why we're going to play this way and these are kind of key metrics that you can study after each game and, and know if we're on the right pathway um, I told him I'd need three transfer windows probably to, to do what I wanted to do. And I think he, he went for the big vision and he went for probably the clarity I had in terms of what I wanted to do with the team. Year one uh, did not go to plan at all. Um, we had a riot uh, in my seventh game. Uh, so I think two, two wins, two draws and two losses and game seven a riot. Uh, so it's not... Not exactly what dreams are made of. So 
Uh, oh, well, well, tell us yeah. about that then. Yeah, so basically <laughs> what happened was, look, there was kind of some handbags on the field. Um, somehow our kit man met himself, made his way onto the field. A Japanese player on the opposition team decided that this kit man didn't look too friendly and punched him. And uh, bas basically, you know, within Asian culture in general, kind of, you really respect your elders or you, you respect someone... From their point of view, this was a staff member and a player. So it was red rag to a bull, basically. The stand emptied and it was just chaos for, I don't know, 10 minutes maybe. What, they all spilled onto the pitch and so, fighting on the pit, all the fans? Fans, then? players, all sorts. And uh, I was actually stuck in my technical area because I was like, you know, I was waiting for a Jeremy Beadle or something to peel out, peel out of the crowd and go, yeah, we're, we're having you on. Uh, but it was real. Um and I was a bit annoyed because I did so much due diligence in taking the role and I didn't see any red flags on discipline or anything like that. And actually, like coaching coaching sessions and how the players received me early on, like you, they were fantastic. Uh, they didn't actually have the confidence straight away to play the way I wanted them to play, uh, which obviously is, is, is something that you experience when you come in and you change things. Uh, but they were... They were they were good professionals, so it, it really shocked mm. me. Did the police have to clear it in the end? Is that how? how it uh, ended? Yeah, and and I think like the game restarted, and the referee might have blown it up a little bit early. <laughs> but yeah, basically we had I think it was seven players banned for eleven games. We had fourteen games left. Um, of those seven, like four were internationals, two were goalkeepers. So it meant like a third-choice goalkeeper playing for the next 11 games unless we did something in the transfer market. And you can only put four foreigners on the field. So typically, you don't sign foreign goalkeepers just because if you had to bring your fifth foreigner on, you know, it's, you're probably not going to change the goalkeeper. So it kind of can dilute things a little bit. Um, look, at the time, it was hell, but it ended up being a real blessing in disguise because younger players got opportunities the fear factor of trying to play the way I wanted them to play was kind of gone. Um, we won the last three games of that season and uh, I had a strong feeling that the players didn't want me to go anywhere, that the CEO didn't want me to go anywhere. Of course, there was a lot of pressure from the outside because we finished mid-table. Um, but the CEO really in particular backed me, the players and staff backed me and the three games of that, the end of that season ended up being the the part of a 33 game unbeaten run where where we we ran on to win the league the following year and we're one game away from being invincible and a penalty kicks away from being double champions and invincible um so it was it was almost a perfect season but you know it was a pretty good one in terms of we did kind of run away with the league that year and i think we kind of set a new standard in the league a lot of the changes that we implemented at a club level started to become norms in Cambodia. So they were very much a country that trialed foreigners. So if there was some foreign footballers in the country, they would take them on trial, but they weren't very proactive in recruitment. And what we did is we, we were quite proactive in recruitment and we got players in early. And now pretty much every club in Cambodia does that, for example. Um, most clubs in Cambodia now are using kind of analysis and sports sciences and GPS, etc. So um, we, we probably were ahead of the curve at that time, but such is football. 
everybody catches up and and you you need to find probably the next way to to get that edge but no it, look it was a great time in Cambodia we were we were the most consistent team in, in the country for five six years but you know we 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 tended to be the bridesmaids we went to the last day of the season and 2020 lost on head to head even though we had a superior goal difference but it was head to head because covid covid disrupted the season so every team didn't get to play each other so every team played the first round of games and then the league was split so obviously it was right to have a head to head rather than goal difference and we lost on head to head to a like a seventh minute stoppage time goal in another stadium so it was it was kind of the opposite of that aguero moment um um and then 2021 last day of the season as well and penalties in the cup final again um so lots of heartbreak but also you know first team in in Cambodia to beat the Indonesian champions in in the equivalent of the Europa League um we played 12 different international games and won 10 of them so we 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 managed to do some things that weren't done before which is a nice feel good factor uh, when when you're part of it and Unfortunately, it's those last days of the season that probably stay with you, you know, when it doesn't go your way. But mm. when you decide you're going to have a career in football or at least try to have one, that's par for the course, unfortunately. You, know. you were talking about setting up this uh, new structure when you got in at the end of that first season, I think. What did you do around recruitment and analysis uh, specifically? So when we first came in, uh, you know, I was very aware that I had to have a kind of proof of concept with the CEO and the owners in terms of show bit by bit what each thing looks like. Uh, and then if they like it, it can grow over time. So analysis and, and recruitment to start with was nowhere near at the level I wanted it to be. Um, but probably when we got to that 2020 stage, the, the CEO had massive buy-in on uh, we were getting match reports from, it was Instat at the time and the CEO had big, buy-in on the key metrics in terms of you know we wanted to be high possession high press and then we had certain certain metrics for him to look at to see if we were actually doing on the field what what we were trying to make our our kind of dna um and basically i sold that way of playing to him because if you look at 100 uh, 100 leagues in world football 90 of them are won by the, the most dominant team in terms of uh you know uh, owning the ball and, and winning the ball back quickly um so so it was it was it, it happens that i like to play football that way too which helps hmm. but it, it wasn't really a stylistic thing it was look we, we want to win we want to be successful what does what, what do winning teams look like um so that grew over time and i think where it really kicked into to gear was when we got y scout and huddle involved uh because kind of with their products and and also their customer care we were able to kind of build what we wanted for our budget um, and then use the tools that Scout and Huddle have to recruit the best possible players through both data and, and eye test and video. Um, and then, you know, try, try to improve them when we got them through, through consistent analysis and, uh, and interventions with, with both the team and individuals. Um, and look, Scout was great for that um, in terms of uh, you can do data searches for players in a very quick and easy way on, on Scout. Uh, you can set up your player lists. Uh, you can compare the players. 
So those kind of tools for us were a dream when when what we stepped into was very agent-based, very kind of trial-based recruitment Mm. system, and then very much uh, improve the players on the pitch uh, coaching system. So when when we were able to kind of implement all of these things, you know, you got buy-in from the players. And And I think that's the most critical thing is, if, if players buy into what you're doing and they're seeing that you're putting time, energy and resources into improving them, um, typically you will get buy-in when you do that. Um, and, and I think, mm-hmm. yeah, th- those tools were massive. And then from my perspective, growing the staff, I was able to get in a sports scientist, uh, an English guy that was at that time based in Singapore who'd worked with West Brom before. I got in a goalkeeping coach who'd, who'd worked with Coventry in England and had been all around Asia. And then over time, we got in a head of medical who'd actually worked in the Indian Super League, worked in Thailand and worked with a few clubs in England as well. Uh, got in some UEFA licensed coaches to assist me. So, you know, I, I can't speak highly enough about the club because when you talk about proof of concept, every time we showed it a little bit, they just gave us more and more control, more power, more resources. And, I think first first job as a head coach, you can't really ask more than that. You know that that we were kind of given the keys to the castle, if you like, and and then having these kind of providers like Huddle and Y Scout, and I I have to give Huddle a massive amount of credit because each each year, or actually it was a two year contract we had with them in the end. Each year we would kind of sit down and what worked well, what didn't work well. And in the end, what Huddle did was they designed a specific kind of dashboard for for us, for how we play and position-specific metrics. Mm. Uh, so they, they had a kind of tableau-based uh, dashboard for us where it was a scatter graph for, let's say, an inverted fullback or an overlapping fullback or uh, an inverted winger or... Uh, an old school wing or, or a second striker, or, um, two different types of tens, a running ten or a playmaking ten. So we had all of these different kind of profile, position specific metrics. M- metrics, sorry, and then they built a system where we could kind of track leagues that were important markets to us, and along with using Y Scout itself, it became a very good kind of. Uh, I think visualization tool and and when you talk about recruitment, I think from from a head coach's perspective, you want to be able to visualize the end output. So let's say if you're changing four players, you have your underlying metrics from last season. You can probably see where it's gone wrong. And then you know where you want to get a, a big win, let's say, or what areas you might want to get small wins in next season. You know, certainly on paper or with the data, what you're losing. And you want that visualization of, okay, on paper, if we bring these guys, we should get to that level that we're, we're, we're trying to get to. Of course, and I know some people get very animated about data and, and say, well, data can't tell you what my eyes can tell me. Of course, that's 100% true that it's, it's, you've got to use both. Um, but also when, when you're trying to minimize nets if you like you know but we don't have the resources to look at 100 players so how do we minimize it to a number that we we can actually do due diligence on when you talk about the first pitch to the ceo in the end we have a new training ground there 
and we're building a new stadium. They moved the academy to start with younger players because it's a very young first team and to try and have this, let's say, class of 92 group uh, in, in a few years' time. So, you know, probably I would have liked to have won, well, no, probably I would have liked to have won more trophies. Um, but in, in terms of kind of going into a club and, and having the club kind of back uh, how you think things should be done, um, it, it was a great, great first place for me to, to have a go at that, you know. Our podcast sponsor, Huddle, can help change the way you see the game. More than 35,000 football teams across the world use their pro suite tools to combine video and data into powerful insights and winning strategies via one connected platform. Huddle also offers consultancy services for high-performance sport with world-class experience and expertise in data management, player recruitment, and head coach search. For more information, go to huddle.com forward slash TGG podcast. Yeah, and I'm very interested in that kind of recruitment tool that you were talking about there, that bespoke uh, tool. Uh, first of all, how did you, did you have existing contacts with Huddle then? How, how were you able to get in contact with them and then develop that bespoke solution? Interestingly, when I left uh, FEI in 2016, I knew I was going to travel for a while. And something I did uh, when I sold my house was I signed up to Scout because uh, I hadn't used it before. So I signed up as an individual and I think I, I paid a monthly subscription and I had con- I had like uh, access to five different leagues. And that was my first experience using it. I actually just bought it myself because I wanted on my travels to be able to do some analysis work to study different coaches in different leagues that, that I kind of liked, that I felt were had certain kind of principles of how they play the game that aligned with mine. So, yeah, I signed up to that for, I think, five or six months it was. And then when I got to Cambodia and I got got the role as a head coach, it was always kind of my desire to get Scout uh, involved. Um, but I think the first package we went with within was Instap because they would do a game-by-game kind of package. And then, like I said, once once we kind of got that proof of concept with, with the bosses and the owners... Uh, I just reached out to White Scout uh, uh, and said, look, we'd like to step up what we're doing, both on analysis and recruitment. How how does that look? Uh, ultimately, how does it cost? Because that's an important thing uh, when, you, when you're working at these levels. Um, and look, right from the start, and, and I've worked with different people uh, in Huddle, but right from the start, it was just the customer service was just top level, and it was always a feeling of I was probably asking questions that weren't getting asked, I suspect. Um, and it was never a no. It was always a we'll get back to you or let's work on solutions. And that's probably how our relationship over time evolved into like them basically designing a bespoke uh, dashboard for us. It's quite time consuming to do due diligence on a player because it's not as simple as what I was saying earlier about the data looks good. It's obviously... It's a lot of video. Um, and again, this is where Scout really helps because you can just go into those specific areas and see, you know, 
it I think it allows you to learn more about a player in a fast way than if you watch five games. Uh, but then ultimately, when you get them into that shortlist, you are watching full games and you're looking for sometimes even just body language and, and reaction with teammates. Or a big one for me, for example, with, with, with goal scorers is how many of their teammates celebrate with them when they score. You know, it, it, can, it can often be kind of, what's this guy like? And of course, you're delving into references. Um, and I think one of the difficult things when you don't have massive amounts of money for your budget is, uh, and we've experienced this actually here in Hyderabad, um, we found two players in Argentina recently that I absolutely loved. And unfortunately, we don't really have, you know, mm. the, the strength on the ground in Argentina where yeah, we can yeah. actually get the references that will back up if that player is the person that we want. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's probably mm. how we're going to grow here. Um, I'm, I'm hoping we can grow a similar relationship here with White Scout and, and Huddle. Um where we can make a bespoke now for Hyderabad, which is mm. different to what bespoke is for Swari. And- I, w- I wanted to still drill down a bit into that recruitment process at uh, Swarian. So first of all, what sort of metrics were you able to look out of players? So you said you like quantify your game model and identify what that is and what different positions require. Yeah, what metrics are you able to look at? Is it physical, tactic, tactical, technical, all of them or...? Certain ones. First is the team. So what we wanted with the team was to be high possession. So we wanted to get more than 60%. It it wasn't, and I know people can batter that metric, for example. It's not because the possession itself was meaningful. It was if we can get 60% possession, we should be able to be in the opposition's half more often. We should be able to regain the ball in the opposition's half. So then the other metric was... If we played a six o'clock fixture, uh, we tried to get 20 ball recoveries in the attacking third. Uh, if sometimes we had a 3.30 fixture in Cambodia, which was red hot. So we'd adjust then and say, okay, let's go for 15. So we, we in those games, we tended to drop the block a little bit deeper, to press off triggers a little bit more, just because we had a fear that we would, with 30 minutes to go, maybe die, you know, uh, because the heat was just completely energy sapping. So uh, high possession, high ball recoveries at, at the top end of the pitch. We PPDA, we, we, so passes per defensive action. So again, it's more of a pressing metric in, in terms of like we, we try to be nine or less. So that's basically allowing nine passes before there's a defensive action. That sounds like a lot, but actually, you know, uh, if you look at a, a Man City or something like that, I think last year off the top of my head, there would have been like 6.8 or something along those lines. So that gives you a little bit of a, an idea. Why, why is it less than that kind of Man City type? Well, again, I go back to you have to work with the players you have and in the league that you have and in the climate that you're in. So for me, that, that was like attainable because as well, when you make these metrics and, and these targets for the team, they have to be attainable. Otherwise, it's 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 uh, you know you if if goals aren't attainable, people get demotivated very quickly. Um, so we felt that that was achievable, uh, and I think most seasons on the the high ball recoveries, the PPDA, we we were top of the league or second. Um, 
The possession was one over my time in Cambodia where it, it varied a little bit and it could vary depending on uh, the recruitment process or it could also vary in terms of uh, with COVID. Um, we were on fire before COVID, so we'd gone 33 games unbeaten. We then had beaten Bali United, who would be a team that was like their budget would be about seven times bigger than ours. So in the equivalent of Europa League, and then the lockdown hit, uh, and you know you were you were you were training in kind of small numbers, or you weren't training, and there was all these things happening. So you know our metrics took a hit at that time because we weren't able to train, and also if you want to play this high possession, uh, high ball recovery style, like. Playing multiple games in preseason is so, so important because um, you're getting that match fitness to play that way. And also, uh, you need to be very refined in your touches and, and, and in your play. When you go position specific, then um, it, for me, it wouldn't be that the center midfielder needs to do X, Y, and Z. It, it's firstly, who do we have in the building already? Um, so the, if it's a midfield tree, does this midfield tree help us? Uh, deep completions was another metric that was really important to us. So receiving the ball 20 meters from the end line. And we were trying to do that more than 10 times a game. Box touches, we were trying to get 20, uh, 20 a game. Again, any of these kind of metrics isolated don't mean anything. Uh, not really. But when you add them all up together, it's it's probably means that you did dominate that game. Um, and then XG, you know, that was one that evolved over time. I think to begin with, I wanted to win the XG battle by 1.0 or more. And then I realized, you know what, that's, that's, that's creating three good chances more than your opponent. And that's, that's quite difficult. Um, so uh, we adjusted that to like 0.35 on the XG. And again, uh, isolated. Uh, are looking per 90 every time at these metrics. We did that. Of course, we did that. We studied each game, but it was more trying to look to see was a trend developing. What we did with the dashboard with Scout, for example, was um, we positionally profiled all these different positions. We had like an inverted fullback. We had an overlapping fullback. We had a six that was like a, a deep line playmaker. We had a six that was you know, a, a kind of, uh, uh, let's say, a Busquets type. And there was different metrics for all of those, but it wasn't many metrics. It was just like two. Um, so, so for example, with the deep line playmaker, it would be interceptions and, and progressive passes so that we were getting that idea that they could function defensively in the role, but they could also help us play in a progressive way. I assume... Certain leagues are fed into that, then you're not just going to be looking at every league in the world. All markets, first thing that dictates is finance. So what, what are players getting paid in that league, right? So we were able to knock out a load of leagues, obviously, based on finance. So that's process of elimination. That's quite, quite straightforward. Um, then the second thing for me is what leagues could I go to players and pitch there's a glass ceiling where you are, right? To, to give a practical example, if there's a foreigner in the USL championship in America, his chance of playing the MLS is so, so slim. 
So he's in an area where there's literally a glass ceiling there. So financially, we can get that player more than likely. And we can appeal to his nature of wanting to climb ladders, play in front of bigger crowds, earn more money by by coming to a Cambodia, which can be a stepping stone for him to go to a Thailand and, and earn a massive contract or, or even, you know, in Indonesia or Malaysia. So uh, that was the second part. And then the third part was going into areas where opportunity and talent were at an adverse kind of uh, area to each other. So I would say Ireland actually is a good example where there's only about six full-time professional football clubs but you have a lot of full-time athletes. You have you have you have like maybe twenty full-time, twenty clubs with full-time athletes, but the conditions are not full-time. So you, when you're looking on Wise Scout and looking at the data, and you've identified kind of a short list of potential players, would you always then want to get human eyes on them? Is is that what you're saying there? Ideally, we'd love to have someone watch them live. That would be great. Mm. But to be honest, within our 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 kind of budget. That's just never really a possibility. Um, for me, there's things you don't see on a white scout, obviously. You don't always have a, a, a tactical cam, for example. So there is things you don't see. But I think because you can check in so many different areas, like a centre-back, for example, which is a particularly difficult place to recruit in, through white scout, you can, you can look at his 1v1 defending, which will be massive for me, and very quickly see... Is it someone that actually makes good decisions defensively? You can click on covering depth and you have a good idea if he's going to kind of be in the right positions defensively. Sometimes what can be difficult is, is he the guy that leads the line? Uh, what's he like as a communicator? There are things you can pick up on uh, through video, but obviously those are things that if you're watching live, you really see those things better. Even, even warm-ups, you know, even... They get substituted in a game, seeing the interaction as, the, you know, these things, you see them a lot more live. So, you know, I'd love to work at the level where we have that as an option. Unfortunately, we, we don't. So just following on from that, did you sign players you hadn't had scouts watch live? Every, every player we signed, no scout watched them live. Oh, wow. Just because it's, 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 it's certainly in Cambodia, like the budget just like, it was a big uh, stretch for me to even get Y Scout deals over the line because what you got to realize is maybe the season before I arrived, you know, all five players that were signed were in Cambodia already because in some cases an agent would have flown them in to test in a lot of different teams. Uh, in other cases, they were in the league already and they were taking what they could see. So scouting and recruitment, it just didn't happen. Um, and it's a funny one, like my first year in Cambodia, I remember um, working so, so hard on, on knowing every player in the league in detail. Uh, and that was by physically going to the games, of course. But I, I did notice when I was going to the games, I wasn't bumping into to peers and, and that, that, kind of, that kind of work ethic, if you like, of, of working in that way wasn't there. Um, it is there now in terms of the people that are working in the country. And, and um, you know, I, I think probably that's a source of pride is that you can go in somewhere and, and kind of affect change uh, in the country, not just your club. And there's so many good people now working in the league and in all the clubs. Um, 
But unfortunately, yeah, that's that's not something that we're able to do here in Hyderabad. We're trying to get through this first window. It's it's a difficult first window because it's a transition period of lots of people are out and lots of people are coming in. And so we're trying I'm trying to get through the existing um structure that's here. Um but as soon as the window finishes, basically I have plans for um five leagues really that we're gonna target where we do have somebody that's number one, a video scout. And then number two can get to games. Again, go back back to Cambodia. So using Huddle and Wise Scout did like materially change the way that you recruited. So you you did recruit a different type of player than than you would have otherwise. I think where it helped me massively was <clears throat> it, it there's so many unknowns in recruitment. You know, even if you're at like I think you know Liverpool are quite famous in terms of their analytics analytics department yeah but like even at that level they would say there's so many unknowns you know it's 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 uh i i think they did a study recently where they were saying that basically it's 50 percent strike rate for for even teams at the top level where they're yeah, yeah, yeah. Spend, spending big money and and using massive resources so you know i've often looked at it that way when you only get five foreign signings and only four can be on the field i can't afford i can't afford a 50% strike rate. You know, a fifty percent strike rate means I, I I'm out of a job basically. So, so so where Y Scout and Huddle really really helped me was they they just um, using their platforms allowed me first to minimize which searches which helped helped me on time management and time management is a huge part of it when you don't have this massive you know uh, body of staff and then the second point is. It just gets rid of as many un- unknowns as possible. Most of the time when a sign-in didn't work, it was more on the personal side. Mm. They failed to adapt to the culture. They failed to adapt to our dressing room. Uh, they failed to adapt to me, maybe in some cases. Um, and look, unfortunately, that's that's part of it. Mm. Um, but I think if I didn't have a tool like Scout, uh, there's no way we would have, you know, we were the most consistent team for over five periods because of our players. Um, and, you know, we, we, we were able to, I think, have a much better than 50% strike rate because we just bought into Scout so much and uh, sad, sadly spent a lot of our time on it. Yeah, and, and you had great success then. So you've gone from the riot and a disappointing season, your first season, to actually winning the league then in, in your second season. A common response, I think, uh, in sport is relief. Uh, obviously, when 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 it when it does finally happen, but outside of relief, it was it was vindication, and not not for me specifically, although there was an element of that. But I was able to go and shake the CEO's hand, shake his hand after you won the league, and go like, you know, uh, the the players, the staff are the champions because they've done the work. I'm the champion because he didn't sack me, you know. So I, that 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 was a vindication for him and for for all the people that got behind me, and that was probably the best feeling of like people stuck their neck out for you, and then they got they got that told you so moment at the end of it, and that that was great. Um, and then from winning the league, obviously you get the power kind of to change the club in the way that you want. Um, and as a knock-on effect, I think the the, the league has changed, uh, and that's uh, that was probably 
uh, above my expectations when I first landed in Cambodia, to put, put it mildly. And just a final one, what are your ambitions for the coming season and for the rest of your career? Yeah, well, I think like probably one of the reasons they hired me here is what I, what I said at the start of our conversation is I'm somebody that likes to stay in a place because ultimately I want that feeling of, you know, look, I can look back in Cambodia now when they fill, when they end up finishing building the stadium and it's the owner's love for the club, it's the owner's money. It's, it's not me that's built that. But I know the way we ran the club brought him closer in how he feels about the club. Um, the same when he built the training ground, the same when they, they restructured the academy. So that's always my wider kind of brief when I go anywhere. It was the same in the Football Association of Ireland is that, you know, you want to impact as many people's lives as possible. And that includes when you're gone, impacting the people that have never met you by being part of building something that's long term and sustainable. So so that, that's probably the end goal. But re- being realistic to to ever get to those stages, you need to win football matches. So so I think this year is is definitely a rebuild. Um, I, I will try not to say that as much as possible because I don't like being an excuse maker for for myself, for the players, for the staff. But it is a rebuild. But I think at the end of this season, if everybody can see what we're trying to do and then we start getting closer and closer to that year on year, I, I think if we get closer to that end goal of playing the way I've described already, then you know uh, trophies will come as a result of that. Uh, but realistically, it's going to take a little bit of time here because basically they've dismantled the successful team. And we, we've, we've got to, to build another one. Well, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Connor. My pleasure, Simon. Nice talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.